All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. I got news for you, pal. You ain't leading but two things right now. Jack and shit. Jack left town. Well, hello, Mr. Fancy Pants. What was that rocket? What rocket? I was just in my office and I heard a rocket. Describe the rocket, sir. Does this mean we're not friends anymore? on the Metal Time Radio Podcast, episode 123. How the fuck are you? Me? Yeah. I'm tired. Me too. I like, I don't think I slept well and... I slept, but uh, I don't know. Oh, somebody just kept snoring all night. I don't know who that was. <laughs> Must have been the cat. The rabbits. Mm-hmm. They snore and snore. She snores. Oh my gosh, our cat... She sounds like she has sleep apnea sometimes. She's like she'd make the perfect pillow though, because she purrs like nonstop. That's so why I'm like, telling you, she needs to come to sleep with us. But she can't. We talked about this. She'll eat everything like hay, pebbles. <laughs> She'll start trying to eat the rabbits. Rabbits. Food. She, the rabbits annoy her. She doesn't even like. It's so funny because well, Peabody annoys her. I don't think Meg really. Meg doesn't. Yeah, like they've looked at each other and haven't even bothered each other, but. Peabody just gets so excited. He's loved her since the day we brought him home, and well, he he likes cats. Like he likes he likes animals. Period. He used to uh, do wagon trains around fucking Abigail. Oh my god, Abigail would get so annoyed. I remember <laughs> she didn't know what to do because he would like hop just... hop in circles, and she would just take her paw and like plop well, it on just, him. She would just look around like, what is he doing? And he's just having a ball. Oh, I love having pets. That's one thing that I appreciate about you is that you two like to have pets. Never any source of entertainment. Well, I mean, it's funny when, you know, I was growing up, I didn't have a ton of pets. And my parents, like, my mom had a dog and I had a dog. And after those dogs died, like, there were no more pets. And my parents, like, they like animals to a point. But they tolerate they them. well like they, they love their like my mom loved her dog and I loved my dog clearly but to them having a pet is like a hindrance like it's more work than necessary where for us it's like a necessity we always want to have a pet 
And I think that kind of like reflects on my sister too because she's always had multiple. I mean, she's got the ferrets, she's got the cat, she's got the dog. She had two dogs at one point and um, they gave Bella to my aunt because um, Bella was getting older and she's really kind of like a solo, kind of like Miss Kitty, like just kind of likes to be the only animal. And ever since she went to my aunt's, she's been like super perfectly happy, you know? All these kids, it was a little too noisy, all the other animals. Well, now they're gonna get another dog. They're gonna get a puppy. So they're gonna have giant ass Shotzi, a little puppy, two ferrets, multiple fish, and a cat. And I think it's just because we didn't have a lot of pets. We weren't allowed to have, you know, extra pets, no hamsters, guinea pigs, nothing. We're still talking about the spider, right? Oh, yes. Yes. We're going to get the spider. What I think, if if you would allow me to help clean and organize down here... I, I don't not have room down here. I can, I can do it. No, there's no room down here. I can organize down here in a way that there will be. Anywho, uh, our show, we've got uh, some cool topics to talk about. we got our retro DVD movie vault, which was selected by Neko this week. Mm-hmm. Uh... We're going to continue sort of our discussion with, like, what makes remakes bad or good. Only this time we're going to be coming up with lists that movies that should not be remade. And we'll give our opinions on that. Uh, a couple of reviews for Near Dark, which I don't think you had seen prior to mm -mm. watching it. So we'll talk about that. And uh, something interesting in Canada regarding a death metal band in an elementary school. Oh, so, really? Yeah, so we'll talk a little bit about that later on. A lot of great new music this week. Um, brand new stuff from Zugander, Lear, Duskmorn, Halloween. Say that again. Yeah. Timo Toki's Avalon. Uh, what else we got? Uh, Nolan Void. He released his uh, full length now, Screaming Into the Void. So we plan some more of that. Yay! Nasty Surgeons. Uh, Astian Axe, which also features the drummer. From Nolan's band, uh, Persecution Complex. So there's a lot going on with Nolan this week. Uh, but this other band, he's not part of that band, but uh, the drummer is. So it's kind of cool. They're really, it's one of my favorite albums of the year. So Good for you. Uh, a lot of classic stuff from Risk. Um, also got some, what do we got? Uh, Sacrificer, or not, uh, Jaguar. Kicking off with Anvil soon. Uh, just a lot coming your way. A lot of good stuff. Uh, Rock Block has a lot of cool stuff in it. Also, Neko's Pick of the Week. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but let's go ahead and kick off our first block. Classic Anvil. It's called Mothra. Mothra! <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
DJ Anubis here, and I want to say if you dig all things Godzilla and KG related, then check out the YouTube channel of the Sci-Fi Century. He has great reviews, opinions, and theories in the world of sci-fi horror, anime, and of course everyone's favorite atomic breathing lizard, Godzilla. Century provides great commentary when both having a special guest on his shows as well as the collaborations with the big teddy bear, that fat samurai guy. So if you want to keep it raw, real, tune into the Sci-Fi Century. That's S-C-I-F-I-S-E-N-T-R-Y Sci-Fi Century Tune in to get the best in science fiction and Godzilla related information Peace Alright, we are back We're back And we had a chance to check out I haven't seen it in years uh, Shutter finally put it back up there And that was 1987, Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. And I know that you and I come away from it with different opinions and viewpoints on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like how you say different, different opinions and viewpoints. Well, yeah, and I mean, you know, some of the stuff you were saying I, I kind of get, and then we'll get into it, but... Uh, well, first, we're going to go ahead and let you get into it. About like, Why do you want me to get into it? You get into it. Are you not a part of this show? <laughs> you start. I'll comment. All right. So, basically, Near Dark is all about uh, a pack of people who are vamp- modern-day vampires. and They don't sparkle, though. No, no sparkles, no glitter. Um, and, and modern day for the 80s. Yeah, it, it was in 1987 when this was made. before Bigelow went on to uh, actually make the movie Point Break later on, a few years later. Uh, the one, like, big thing here is that the cast is very strong. You had Jenny Wright, who had appeared in um, The Lawnmower Man with Jeff Fahey. She also ended up doing, I believe, one of the Young Guns movies. I think it was Young Guns 2 that she was in as well. Uh, so she's actually kind of like the, the main star in terms of like the, the main character who gets involved with this ordinary Joe cowboy boy. This is all taking place in Texas. Kansas. Uh, is it Kansas? Mm-hmm. I thought it was Texas. Maybe they were just driving down that way. I don't know. But anyway. I don't know. They, like they had a bunch of stuff like when they were in that motel, it said Kansas State Troopers. Okay. Maybe I, maybe I was thinking it was a cowboy hat, so it was all Texas. Well, but. you know, Kansas <laughs> is, is very rural, too. It is. Uh, so anyway, uh, the young man who is our lead, you know, notices her one night and tries to talk her up. And it kind of really jumps into everything real fast. So he's giving her a ride back to her house, but Dawn is, just, is starting to come up and she's panicking. She, she, we already kind of get the feeling that something's wrong. She's not normal. She keeps telling this guy that that she's she's a girl he's never met before. So, uh, yeah, he was saying something like, "Are you are you scared your daddy's gonna get mad?" <laughs> right. So he stops the car before they, you know, they're probably like I don't know, half a mile away maybe, uh, from where she needs to be, and 
he refuses to take her back until she kisses him. So she does, and it's a nice little erotic kiss. And then she bites him. And then she leaves, runs to get back to her wherever. And he is can't get his truck started, so he's kind of like trying to walk his way back to his house. Um, on the way there, the sun's coming up, and I guess this virus that she carries as a vampire starts to work very fast. So he's already starting to burn up. Like, he doesn't know what the fuck is going on. He just knows he's hot, he's burning. His father and sister are watching him coming towards like, him. What they're the like, hell is wrong with him? Yeah, they're like on a farm. They're doing farm things. And then all of a sudden, out of blue, we see this, like, motorhome flying down the road. And uh, they swing by, and somebody snatches up, pulls him inside, and the father and daughter try to chase down the motorhome, but they can't catch it. So here's where we discover that uh, Jenny Wright's character... Uh, is part of this family uh, of vampires. It's like five people. So you have, but three of them, ironically, are played by Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, and Jeanette Coldstein, who all appeared. Bill Paxton just makes the movie, honestly. It, it, they all appeared in Alien, so you're going to recognize a lot of them from that. Um, the younger guy, uh, Homer, he's a, like the kid. But he's supposedly, like, one of the older vampires there. Like, he's just... This is one of the things I connected with in terms of how his character played out versus what we saw with Kirsten Dunst and Andrew the Vampire. Like, it was like a, you know, a grown woman and a little body. And so we'll get to that in a little bit. But, yeah, Neko's right. Paxson is, like, brilliant in this. And this is really when Paxson was kind of his youngest. He'd already just come off Aliens. And uh, that little bit he did in Terminator. So, you know, he's he's fresh and he's kicking ass. As, I mean, it wasn't, but maybe a couple of years later he actually did Predator too. So he was really mm -hmm. hot around this time. So, uh, but his character is funny. And he did a lot of ad-libbing, including, which I didn't realize, is the finger-licking good uh, comment that he made <laughs> in the bar. So All that bar scene. Yeah. So, but they're all like... This is funny about this because they never really mention vampires in this, but we just know that's what's happening. Like, the, the blood is actually a drug for them, obviously. That's how they portray it. So, obviously, the new guy who's been bitten, like, they're waiting for him to make his first kill to, like, solidify that he's going to be one of them. But, you know, just like anything else, he's not really wanting to kill, and he's still trying to figure out what's going on so he looks really like a, a druggie who's going through rehab or you know what what do they call that when they're trying to clean up um get clean you know they they, they look sweaty and pale and oh withdraw yeah it, it basically that's what it looks like he because he, he's he doesn't want to kill because he still has a conscience and he hasn't done it before but he realizes because so far his girlfriend jenny wright's character is like killing people and then feeding him and he gets all happy and smiley when she does when he does that but she's feeding him off of her right so it's like it's still like a drug to that point that he, like he you know he can almost kill her by taking all her blood but she he doesn't care but once he runs out of that and has a feed again he's back down to the withdrawal syndrome and he looks like shit but the the head of the the clan basically is Henriksen's character Jesse and he's been around for a while since like the Civil War. Yeah, he's like, and the South lost. <laughs> yeah. So he's uh you know he's very strict about this 
young man to, to get on board with everything. So, of course, we talk about the bar scene. They all come in late at night, and they basically, there's probably like five or six people in there, including the bartender. Yeah, and it's like a little hick sidebar. It's right. not like you're in some big pumping nightclub. And, of course, Paxton's character is waving his dick around. He's in there, like, you know, just throwing his shit. Because he knows what's going to happen, and, you know, he drinks some dude's shot, and then, like, you know, eventually they start killing people, and they expect... Uh, the young man who they've drafted into their crew to kill the last guy there, but he lets him go, and that creates all sorts of problems for him. So yeah, because then he runs to the police, and they locate the stolen van, and then they have this big shootout at the hotel. Yep. So we finally, um, you know, they do manage to get out of that because the young man that they have with them gets the van and finds a way to kind of get in the good graces of Jesse and the clan at that point. However, eventually when they're at another hotel, his dad and daughter, uh, dad and sister find him. And this is at the point where Homer, the younger of the group, uh, who is kind of jealous that the young man has gained the affection of uh, Jenny Wright's character because he, she, she was the one that was bitten by him. Now, I don't know what the, if his purpose was to try to win her as a, a girl lover or whatever. Mm -hmm. Obviously, because his body's so young, he's not like a fully developed man. So, but in his mind, he is. So, there's a bit of jealousy there. So, when he sees uh, the young girl, who, who at the time he didn't know was this young man's sister at the Coke machine, uh, he thinks, "Oh, well, I'm gonna get me a partner just like he has." And we kind of, if you've ever seen *Interview with the Vampire*, it's sort of a similar theme that we have with Kirsten Dunst's character who wants a mother and. You know, knows that she'll never be a full-grown woman. Uh, so there's this dilemma because of a young vampire who is stuck in this little body. He wants he wants a friend. Right. So and he's Homer, like, I'm not giving her back to you. Right. So Homer's very set on having Sarah as his, you know, partner in life, I guess. And uh, obviously that creates a problem for the new guy who doesn't want his dad or sister involved in all the shit that's going on with the vampires. Like, he's kind of willing to stay with them but not at the cost of giving up his dad and, and sister but Jesse and Severin who is Paxton character do not want to play that game they can't. they feel like once you're a vampire you're part of their family your family doesn't exist anymore right and they don't want the risk of them going and telling more people where they are like that's the whole thing the, the biggest thing here isn't so much crosses or stakes or bullets it's sunrise like that's how they avoid dying like that's the biggest thing they're terrified of so and this isn't a case of like oh we can just run to our coffins and jump in these are people that live in cars they have to like spray paint the windows and put up foil uh they have to hide in sheds because this is just a normal vampire modern type take it's not anything that you're gonna find yeah, it's not it. religious there's no garlic there's no holy water right so, it's a very gritty, dirty, like, these aren't clean-cut vampires. They just, you know, they don't have to worry about showering because they don't care. Um, you know, they're just there for themselves and their family and just the next feeding or whatever. Um, yeah, what the, you make a good point because the one thing I really did notice was, you know how a lot of vampires and a lot of vampire movies we see, they really do, like, hone in on their... Um, 
their beauty and their sexuality and all and this was more like primal they were more like um monsters eating like the way that they hunted the way that they played with people before they killed them it was that's that's kind of what made this i see what you're saying a little bit grittier and different than like interview with the vampire or a lot of other vampire movies like even dracula like you watch it and dracula is beautiful and charming and you know inviting and these are just like we're gonna just like rip somebody's throat and blow up the bar yeah uh and you know i i kind of understand what i know echo's gonna get into it soon when she starts talking about how she felt about it but you know the movie's a bit dated like this is the second this is probably i mean i've seen it more than two times but it's been a long time since i've actually sat and watched this i remember watching it years ago when it first came out and so I can see some of the problems with it because there's a pacing issue with it. And the ending is, you know, it's one of those atypical, almost remind me of how uh, Silver Bullet ended. It was just like the freeze frame uh, with, you know, Jenny Wright hugging her boyfriend at that time. Because eventually what happens is we find out that dad is able to transfuse his blood into his son and clean him up to mm-hmm. the point where he's no longer a vampire. Neko and I were kind of scratching our heads about all that because they end up doing it to Jenny Wright's character at the end as well. Um, we were kind of on the assumption that once you've already killed, that, that kind of nicks the whole plan out of place, but apparently not. Uh, so there's some uh, logic issues there with that. Um, the only thing you can really take from it is that the rest of the vampires in the clan, whether they had the knowledge of that stuff can actually be done or not, they probably just enjoyed being who they were. So it probably didn't even matter at that and point. You, like you were saying, it probably was almost like being a drug addict to them. Yeah. Like, they were just so high off the kill and off the blood. Yeah. So, okay, yeah, go ahead, give us uh, your breakdown. It was okay. It wasn't really great. That that's like my I but you were saying it's like a huge cult favorite and for me it's like literally just okay. I mean, I don't think I'd ever seek it out and watch it again. I once is enough for me. I didn't love it at all. I didn't hate it, but you know we were talking when we were watching it and you kind of brought up the Lost Boys. I see, I said, but see, that's something I love. And I watched it over and over and over, like for years, something I'll go back to all the time. I'll never go back to this movie. There's lots of things that you said, like the pacing, the movie itself, like, you know, one thing happened and then boom, something else. It, it just, it was okay. Yeah. You know, obviously, once the young man is kidnapped by this group after being turned, his dad and sister take it upon themselves to try to chase him down by going through law enforcement and everything else. But, and we know that that law enforcement is trying to find him. But it's almost like a, it's almost like Bigelow tried to force that part of it in there, which you have to have the story. But I think she was just limited by the constraints of time on this movie mm-hmm. because nothing was ever kind of fleshed out like it was once it happened it was fast and like you're just like where'd that come from <laughs> you know like and you almost wanted to explore the family more because there was a moment where towards the end before the father and daughter sh- uh, show up that 
they're in another hotel room, they're playing cards, and, and that's the kind of thing where like you get to kind of see a little bit more about their personalities, but it was kind of shortcut because of everything else that's going on. And that, that you made a, that's another good point. Like you don't really see their personalities; you just kind of see their mayhem. Right, and there's like no real dynamic there. We just know what they do when they are feeding and you know killing. And people. they're basically like, "This is the boss." They they just kind of lay it out. It's very flat. They're like, "You know that this guy is the boss, and you know that this person is is with this person, and you're just supposed to fall in line." And as a viewer, you're supposed to just fall in line. Yeah, and I think ultimately, you know, as you said, and we talked about, you know, this is a cult classic with a lot of people. A lot of people, especially within the last few months, because of just you know vampire movies in general they keep talking this movie up and it, it is a decent movie uh but i don't think it's a movie that i really want to own because i don't think it's something i would go back to in fact i'd almost start with neko more is that i just more entertain entertain with movies like lost boys or blade or even interview with the vampire these are just movies that i feel like are just better made even if you disagree with like how the vampires are portrayed the reality is it's just more entertaining for me uh, because of these pacing issues with Near Dark, uh, there are some very cool performances. Henriksen and Paxton are great in this. Uh, as usual, we expect that really from those two. Uh, but outside of that, you know, even with uh, Jeanette, uh, who was brilliant in Aliens, there's no depth with her character at all. We just kind of see her in there as a lover of Jesse, and it's just like. There's nothing else there with that other than that she, you know, is there. And it's almost like, now what? Now that she's with him, now what? Like, at the end, it's, you know, are we just supposed to assume everything's all right? Yeah, because, you know, the funny thing is, is that... He literally just met her. From my recall, Jenny Wright's character, you know, she had only been bitten, like, maybe four years prior. Mm Mm-hmm. So she was definitely human before she, you know, became this vampire. And now she was kind of, like, shocked when this, when they opened the door and the sunlight. Well, I mean, and four years is a long time. But... Well, it is. But then she's, like, she was still fearful of, like, the sun, which really, in some ways you understand it. But in other ways you're kind of like, well, you've seen the sun before, even though it's been a while. But obviously, yeah, there is no real decisive conclusion with that particular couple and it just it's like what you came back came to say like you don't really get to know anybody so you're all kind of like um yeah really the only one that you actually kind of get to know is homer and that's really towards the end when he's so desperate to be with sarah because they managed to get her out of the car and it's daylight at this point so they get her out of the car and they're you know he's busy trying to cover jenny wright's character who's running with the girl to try to get her away from the family because she's realizing that she doesn't want bad things to happen to either one of them. Mm-hmm. Homer jumps out and he just wants to be with Sarah, but he's like in flames before he can even get to her. He's like done. He's, you know, he's just, Sarah, I want to be with you. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, Henriksen and, and Diamondback, played by Jeanette, you know, they try to run him over but can't make it fast enough before they explode because the sun's just too strong inside the car. Uh, but they were, you know, their characters were more than willing to take the the bullet for that at that point. They just knew that their time was up. So, but there again, it just comes back to the pacing of it all. And 
again, I'm not going to fault Bigelow. She did a really good job with what she had to work with, I think, at the time. So, you know, and it, unless you have a budget that you can work with or you can uh, kind of flesh that stuff out a little bit. If you ever watch Point Break, she did so much better with that than she did with this because she probably had more to work with in terms of budget. So, uh, but she's a pretty good director. Uh, she did a really good job with it. It was nice and clean. It wasn't like something you would see from the 70s and all grainy and whatnot. <laughs> You know, so it was, it was well shot. I'm not saying it's terrible, but it's not something I'd ever watch again. Yeah, I don't think I don't think you and I would agree that it's really a 10 out of 10 or anything like that. Uh, it's decent enough, and I could probably revisit it in another 20 years and be fine with it. But So 20 years from now, we'll pop it back in? Yeah. All right, well, let's get back into some music. Uh, I've got some stuff called, uh, a band called Elder Blood from Grand Sounds Promotion in here. I uh, also have some brand new stuff from Zirgandir Lear and Duxmorn. And uh, both of these bands are now on their third record, brand new records. Nice. But both bands also have their debuts, which are one of my favorite records of all time. Uh, with uh, Seal and Wanderer by Zirgandir Lear and then uh, Legends by Duxmorn. But uh, don't kid yourself, their new records are pretty strong. And we're going to hear a couple tracks from those records right now. Here's Duxmorn kicking it off with The Sleeping Tide.
What's up, everyone? This is Richie from Grave Huffer, and you're listening to DJ Anubis and DJ Neko on Metal Tavern Radio. Rank it the fuck up. Testing, here we go. Sorry about that, folks. So last week we were doing the worst remakes and best remakes. We crossed over a little bit between you and I and the... Yeah, so we made a, we made a little list last week, and we I think we... How many did we pick? Like 10 each or something? 12, 12. Yeah, it was something... It was a lot. Which we had to, like, speed up a little bit. We went through a few of them. You know, in depth a little bit, and talk about why we thought they were good or bad, and and we and I I knew we'd cross over a little bit with like the best and the worst because we just you just kind of gave me the the task. You're like, I need your twelve best and your twelve worst remakes that you've seen, and I'm like, all right. And when we started comparing, we did it live on the show. We didn't like kind of pre do anything, so um. When we were doing it, we were realizing, like, you know, a lot of our, our uh, similarities, basically. Yeah, and then you came up with the idea that in this week's episode that maybe we should talk about movies that should not even be touched. Exactly. Remake-wise, and uh, I thought that was a great idea. Um, I am on a website called scoopwoop.com, but I think before we get into their list of 25 movies that should never be remade, some I haven't seen, some I have... I think we'll go through our list first because then maybe some of ours will appear on their list. So we'll let you start. What was the first one on your list that you feel like should never be remade? The Princess Bride. Honestly, I, I, it's a it's a Mel Brooks classic. It's hysterical. It ha- I have all those little kid feelings like, you know, I remember watching it as a kid. My, my grandmother loved the movie too and, you know, Ironically, I don't know if I, I'm using ironically in the correct term, but <laughs> when uh, the first time I watched it, I was at home sick with my grandma, and you know, Fred Savage is at home sick with his grandpa when he's reading him the book, The Princess Bride. Yeah, and I, I think I was telling you last week uh, when you brought it up because that was one, you know, you brought up that particular movie, and I said, Well, yeah, I read that Carrie Ewells was kind of like. You know, talking about how he felt that movie should never be touched either. He's the star of the movie. Uh, now, he could have been just sarcastic. Maybe many uh, actors who do original movies feel that way about whenever someone touches. Some don't care, some do. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, I'm not, like, the biggest fan of that movie, but it is very funny. It's very, it is a huge cult classic mm-hmm. for people, so... It is. It's beloved. Uh you know, he, the funny thing with the number one movie on my list, and 
I've always been kind of torn because it, it goes back to what we talked about with Clash of the Titans, like how we thought that the CGI was a letdown, that when you have the technology nowadays, you can make movies look better than they really were. Mm -hmm. uh, however, they failed in that regard with Clash of the Titans. So the number one movie, if I'm basing it upon just my lack of trust. In lack what, of trust, I like that. <laughs> Uh, would be Jaws. Like, I just, I don't think you can really replicate what was going on there with that movie. And, the actors. Yeah. Uh, the suspense. You know, I, I'd seen some, a few weeks ago, I'd seen some deleted footage that was kind of creepy when you look at it, because it wasn't, it was done just in black and white, and it was done um, without any kind of music score. It was just stuff that that they showed on YouTube and it was just kind of like I don't want to say test footage but it was before it never went to finishing or anything right and, I, and some of it was creepy but then I thought to myself you know one of the things that Spielberg learned uh, with the movie was the less shark you see until the end the better like it was just that created all this whole new atmosphere what you were seeing and it was you know not on purpose because Bruce was being difficult yeah he was being a dick uh, the Bruce's I think there was three of them the Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> Don't call me Bruce. That's what Giles was saying. He's like, stop it. Knock it off. All right. What's the second one on your list? Cool Hand Luke. That one I've never seen. It is phenomenal. It's one of my favorite movies. And I think it's one of my favorite movies because my mom is in love with Paul Newman, but she'll never admit it. And um, it's, it's literally like that... Um, that that speech that the warden gives uh what we got here is a failure to, to communicate. communicate like that that's what everybody knows is that because it's from that guns and roses song um but the movie is really interesting because luke is really not like this hardened criminal he's not like a murderer he's not like you know robbing banks he's like a petty thief and he winds up in jail working on a chain gang basically and he's just like fucking digging ditches and stuff um but he does not want to be chained and all he does is try to escape and there's it's like you see all these different scenes of how creative he gets but the very famous scene so I, oh, before you get about that so is it did you ever see is it Escape from Alcatraz with um, Eastwood? What's the one where you escape from Alcatraz? Probably Escape from Alcatraz. I don't... Yeah, I think that's it. But mm -hmm. is it... Because I'm trying to figure out, like, what is your reasoning for not wanting to remake it? Is it because the acting's so good? The acting's the good. The story's said? good. And it's like... So, you know, Escape from Alcatraz is like this big thing to get out of Alcatraz. This is just a little Florida prison in the middle of nowhere. But he is so, like, anti-establishment. And I think that's one of the things that two people appreciate with this movie. He just does not want to be, you know, in this prison. But I find... It is, it's, it's an older movie, but it's also set, like, in an even older time. And you really, like, kind of look at, at Cool Hand as, you know, he's, he's Cool Hand Luke. You see, like, the prisoners just look at him, and he is, like, the cool guy at the prison. And they, 
they just are enthralled by him and it is all about Paul Newman's acting. Right. But the the famous scene, the best scene is is he made a bet with someone that he could eat 50 eggs and he forces in an hour and he forces down 50 eggs and it was absolutely disgusting and hysterical cuz the cook made 50 hard-boiled eggs for him to eat. I feel like if you tried to remake it now, because this was shot in the 60s, so it has a very 60s style of, you try to make it now, it would turn out more like, like too high action, high impact, like high, this is like a very relaxed movie for what's going on. Like they, they send the hounds. more methodical. Yeah. They, they send the hounds out on him, but like it would, you know, and, and prisons really don't exist like this the way that they did you know, back in the day. But if you would try to remake this, you would lose that, like, it is a Florida country prison, and they would try to, like, take it from how simple the movie is and turn it into something so, like, oh, we're breaking out of the most uh, advanced prison. Dude just, like, walked out the fucking door. Like, I mean, and they, at times when they would have visitors people would drive up in their cars and you would be allowed to go out and sit in the cars. I mean, that, that's what I mean. Like, it's it's a prison, but it's it's you're not escaping from Alcatraz. Like, it's... Right. So, seeing how anti-establishment Luke is, <clears throat> how charismatic Paul Newman is, it's just... But I do have to blame my mother. She's in love with Paul Newman, so every time I catch a Paul Newman movie, I'm like, yep. Well, my second one on the list is one of my all-time favorite movies, and it's The Crow with Brandon Lee. Yes! Uh, the biggest reason why I would never want to remake, even though I know they've been toying with the idea to rebooting it and whatnot, is as much as it sucked with Brandon passing away on, on the film set as well at the time that it was shot, is... There is an overall feeling and emotional vibe that runs through the crow, not just with the plot, but with what happened with Brandon Lee. And and it's very shot, um, you know, grunge was getting really big at this time. It has a great atmosphere, mm -hmm. great layout, great soundtrack. Um, yeah, it just, you know, everything about the way the film was done was just perfect. And I, think, I believe it was Alex Proyas who actually directed it, and he went on to make uh, Dark City and stuff like that. And I just can't imagine how they would be able to pull off the same type of vibe that The Crow had. And it, it's not even so much with Brandon passing away. It's just if you watch the movie itself, you have uh, David Patrick Kelly in there who was famous from The Warriors and... Uh, you know, Ernie Hudson, and just so many uh, uh, Whenots in there as a villain, top dollar. And just so many great performances in there, great music. But when you would remake it, the slight changes that you would do to change it would ruin it. And that's the big thing. That's what we were talking about with, uh, like, Psycho. Again, Psycho is a very 60s shot, like, old school yeah you, you have know. this it's simple but then when they tried to remake it and just modernize it but they were trying to go exact story shot for shot it didn't work well not only that but you know we like vince vaughn in certain roles 
the thing that made Anthony Perkins so perfect was he's like this kind of goofy, lanky-looking dude who you just didn't feel threatened mm-hmm. by. Uh, the first rumor about the Crow remake was that Jason Momoa would be taking on the character. And that's that's really, like, not and what he, he is. Right. You know, Brandon Lee, despite being a martial artist, was still kind of this skinny, lanky dude who... But know, he's portraying... A musician. He's not like Jason Momoa looks like a fucking a wrestler. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, and it just doesn't work. And I obviously Momoa fell out with the, you know, out of the production for that. And I don't know what they're doing at this point with it. But I can't imagine you're going to find anybody because they've done sequels to this film uh, with different people and you know obviously different plot points and whatnot. But None of them come close to the same vibe and feeling that you got from the original. And that's the thing. Like, we talk about it with Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, I love uh, Jackie Earl Haley, uh, but he's not Robert England, and there's an issue there. Like, it's just, it's not me trying to be hard headed. I'm always open to things, but when you see an iconic character like Freddy Krueger, just nobody's going to fill that role. It's just, it's his, it belongs to him. And I say the same thing with Eric Draven with Brandon Lee. I know he's gone, but that's his role. Like, I don't care how many times people try to, like, fill that role up. It's just not going to work. Now, we can't really speak for the new generation of people who may never have seen The Crow. Or they may never, like, they might watch it and just won't get it because they're not really... And this is kind of goes back to our, like, The Princess Bride is a fantasy. You know, it takes... But... Like with Cool Hand Luke, it it doesn't speak to like people maybe past our age because it's not you're it's just not gonna feel anything. You're you're not on your phone. You're not like it's not like Ready Player One where that will you know we enjoy it too. But younger people enjoy that because they understand being immersed in virtual reality. Right. But like the crow, there there are no cell phones. There are no. It, it it's hard for people to kind of who are younger than us, who grew up when they always had a smartphone, and you know we did not always have a smartphone. I think the only thing that would ever work with any remake, if they tried to do any of the movies on our list, is that you'd almost have to approach it the way that the guy did for Suspiria because. While there's some similarities there, the Suspiria remake was vastly different than the original, so... Or, like, You Got Mail and The Shop Around the Corner. That old movie was about being pen pals. They twisted it. It's not the exact same movie, but now they're internet pen pals. They're they're writing emails to each other. They met in a chat room. It's kind of like it, it, it brings it a little... You'd have to change something, and it wouldn't be the exact same movie... Because that's exactly what you got mail is not the same as the shop around the corner. It's just inspired. So what is your third on the list? My third is Spy Game with uh, Robert Redford and Brad Pitt. Yeah. And I'd never seen it, I think, until I met you. Now, it's not a particularly old movie, um, but... I always, like, watch it when it's on TV, and every time it, like, pops up, I watch it. I just, it's captivating and thought-provoking, and you, I can't pick two different actors. 
like to portray if we ever talk about like actors who like totally nail a role or like blow it out of the water redford is amazing mm-hmm. in this because i remember watching it for the first time in the theater and i'm like man i did not see any of that coming i just did not like know what was going on it was there's so many twists and like uh secret things going on that you think oh he's doing this but he's really doing this and that's what makes that movie so brilliant and and you think that he's being he's double crossing mm-hmm. he's not but he but he's making it so that it looks like he is to protect Brad Pitt it's just it's so good brilliant, brilliant. it was well written it was well acted and you know how like you and I always are kind of like um we want something that just keeps our attention, you know? Well, and, I, and you know, you have that movie on your list. There's one that I know that's on this list on this article that I know you're going to agree with, mm-hmm. and when we get to it, we'll talk about it. But, yeah, it's just, again, a lot of these films that we have on our list probably have certain characters that are just so iconic that, like, it's going to be very hard for anybody else to beat them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the next <laughs> iconic character? Oh, for me? Mm-hmm. Well, uh... I'm peeking at your list. Oh, well, yeah, the... Well, actually, the next film for me, uh, Clockwork with, Orange. With an iconic character. Yes, Malcolm McDowell. Uh, yeah, I don't think you could ever get away with doing this film. Uh, it was really a different thing at the time, even though it's very 70s, uh just everything that was going on with the film how it was done the uh the story itself i mean it wasn't the, ver- book, the yeah. verbiage um yeah just there's so many things going on within it like you would say on the surface oh it's just like a thug movie but it's not there's just so much more underneath it that's going on it kind of falls back to cool hand luke with like being so anti-establishment because you know in alex, alex he was like anti-establishment while he was you know being in his little gang and then when he finally gets caught he's and that's the thing though because alex you know unlike probably some of his his goons uh he came from a well family he was in lived in a nice neighborhood Mm -hmm. and you know educated uh and he considered himself like very educated like you know his taste he went to a private school so here was this guy's you know, living a pretty decent life, and then on the night side of it, he's out there with the riffraff trying to, you know, hurt people and do crime and mm-hmm. all this other stuff. So, but then, of course, as we all know, the film flips towards the end when he's been arrested and goes to jail, and then he's going through this uh, program to deprogram himself, and turns out they do some pretty shady things to him, and in the end he's the one that has to like basically sue them for like or at least they try to make up for the fact that they fucked him up (laughs) to the point that he couldn't even operate as a human being without i I think the overall point of the whole movie was you you have a conscious choice of what you're going to do in life and even if you're the government and you strip that away you're taking away their choice to be who they are so and i think that's that speaks to a lot of people um and at the you know when you realize he's been quote-unquote reprogrammed you see like there are people who are like yeah he's a terrible 
murderer and rapist and thug, but you're you're not being any better by doing this to him. Right. And, uh, yeah, again, another iconic character. They just, I, I can't see anyone else doing it. I mean, they're great actors, modern-day actors that could probably pull it off, but it's all about the, the time, the vibe, the story, because Kubrick was a brilliant director. Uh, so many people try to do stuff like this over the years. And, and it just and, comes off like... I mean, we talked about with some movies last week how, like, remakes actually improve upon something. I just can't see how you can really improve upon this movie. Uh, no matter what the technology holds. Because it really wasn't about technology back then. It was about the acting and the shots and everything else. So, But see, and you, I feel like you could take this story and again inspire like you know west side story is literally romeo and juliet right but you would never really think of it and let and i learned this in in english class and i never put two and two together but they even like show the parallels of like the different scenes that they took but they turned it into like you know two rival gangs in new york okay well you got two warring families and a lot, you know, one falls in love with the other and blah, blah. So you can take a story and make it your own, but still kind of like have that same feeling. And West Side Story is musical. Romeo and Juliet is Shakespearean. They, I mean, they do it a lot. So if they were to attempt a Clockwork Orange, I think it would have to be in that vein. It would have to be you're going to take the idea but you'd have to have your own characters. You'd have to create your own characters in your own world. You can't can't go shot for shot. We see how bad that goes when people like A Nightmare on Elm Street, like Psycho. Like You can't just go shot for shot and make a remake. Right. All right, so what's number four on your list? Mine is a combo because it's another Paul Newman thing. Again, I blame my mother. Um, it's The Hustler and For the Love of Money. And I put them together because Paul Newman's in both of them, but then Tom Cruise is in the second one. And it's kind of a true story about um, Fast Eddie, uh, what's his last name? Fast Eddie Felston. And he was a pool player and literally was just hustling people to try to get into the big time. And then when he tries to go up against the big guy who's uh, called Minnesota Fats, he loses. And he loses a lot. And was and, Gleason who played that? Yes. Yeah. So, and, you know, he ends up getting into the big leagues with pool, but, like, it's like we say about all these bands that we, when we watch these documentaries, you're green. You don't read your contracts. You get screwed over by your managers. You get screwed over. So when I, I put them both together because it's not a remake, you know, for, for the love of money. Or Color of Money. God, I call it For the Love of Money. It's Boom Thugs and Harmony. For the Money. That's a, that's a Boom Thugs and Harmony color song. Color of Money, fool, yeah. So, Color of Money, um, when... Bullet Boy song. <laughs> <laughs> so, I put them together because it gives you a great example of how you can continue a story 20 years later, and it's still really good, and still well acted, and... I would not remake either one of those because they brought back Paul Newman to be in The Color of Money. 
and he retained his like acting chops uh from the first movie but he was older so it's just really really wild like i don't and like as crazy as tom cruise is like he he's hard to replicate he's a great actor like i mean a league of their own jerry Maguire. like you know there's some really good movies I don't want to see some classic movies, and I'm glad when they decided to bring back the whole Fast Eddie story. There were rumors that it was going to be more of a remake t style, but they took it and kind of made it into its own movie right. with Tom Cruise. So that's why I, I bundled them together, because those it, it's a great example of what you can do. All right, well, number four on my list is The Breakfast Club. And uh, it's more than just one iconic character for this. You have five iconic characters. And iconic <laughs> actors. Right, that's basically what I was getting at. Uh, you got Molly Ringwald, uh, Mila Estevez, uh, Judd Nelson, Hallie Sheedy, and uh, Michael... I forget his name, the nerdy guy. Michael Thomas Hall? Yes, thank you. Michael Hall. And so, basically, you got five students who are spending a Saturday on detention, and uh, they get through into some shenanigans throughout the time. They're all different. They're all different in their own ways, because you got the nerd, you got the... They're all in different, like, circles, the, except for... The, the popular girl, mm -hmm. the athlete, etc. And so they all spend this afternoon fighting but then like Anthony Michael Hall I said Thomas Michael Hall Sorry. Anthony Michael Hall that's it so they all end up finding their own the ways that they are more alike than not and uh it's just kind of fun shh please we'll, we'll get you we'll get you and so uh you know it's just one of those movies that I can't you know they've tried with other types of movies similar in vain the sort of replicated but it's never done the same way and it's it goes back to what we say um what i was saying about you know cool hand luke what we were saying about the crow it's it's very true to its time it's very um like the characters are, are developed you you really start feeling for these people and understanding like their sides of of life again you try to remake something like this now the kids would have their phones out like there would be no interaction between each other yeah you had to be a little more original back then you know um obviously you can listen to a walkman or something but that was really kind of the limit and even then you're spending your detention where you're not doing that so you're forced like bender played by Jen nelson he's the one that kind of instigates all the shit that goes on He's like the atypical AK loser, uh, headbanger dude that wants to break rules. And he, even though the rest of them kind of like feel what he's talking about, they all are hesitant until he kind of pushes the envelope. So, uh, and then of course they all discover that they all like, again, have their own similarities with home life, how they're dealing with parents. They all have their own pressures. They're all worried about things differently, but everybody, they realize that everybody has something that's important to them, and that's what's making, you know, stress in their lives. Right, and so, you know, 
then you take a guy like Bender who, you know, is so headstrong about everything, but he does show affection for uh, Molly Ringwald's character because even though she's like the AKA prom queen type girl, you know, he's in some ways he wants acceptance with her uh, because, you know, he likes her, is attracted to her, so it's like he tries to find ways to, to connect with her as he can, and he's obviously still doing his shtick where, like, you know, if she even shows any kind of, like, kindness to him or whatever, he goes back to his regular, like, well, I'm a bad boy. Well, it's all always like what the parents say, the boys that tease you are the ones that like you, and I... I really, you start to really feel for Bender because at first you think he's just a pain in the ass, but you realize, you know, he's got this terrible home life, and you're even surprised that he would show up for detention. Right. Because he has, it, it's almost like you see he has no one, and everything is very attention-seeking for him because he gets attention from no one. And that's why he acts out so much, you can tell. So when Molly Ringwald just starts, Claire, a fat girl's name, <laughs> she, uh, when she starts like listening to him, she really kind of gets it, you know, and she, she realizes he's, he is an asshole. But you might be able to, like, get through to this asshole by just well, li listening. Well, that's why when they all have that little circle jerk where they finally are talking and they're all kind of explaining why they're there. Well, even for Emiliesa's character, the jock, you know, he's there because he bullied another person in the locker room and got in trouble for it, you know, but he's trying to impress his dad who spent his lifetime doing that. Uh, talking about, like, how you behave like your dad or whatever. And then on the other end, you have Anthony Michael Hall's character who wants to be friendly with everybody he's just so nerdy that you know it gets but he his biggest thing is keeping his grades up so when he takes a class that he thinks is full of dumbasses like shop he realizes that oh my god i'm not passing this class because i don't know what the fuck i'm doing so he gets almost suicidal to that point and we it talks about all that kind of stuff so, so it does get very deep i mean i the first time i saw it i was in ninth grade and i i was dating a guy and he asked me if I had ever seen The Breakfast Club, and I'm like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. And we watched it, and I was like, this is pretty intense. Like, you know, so being, like, 14 and realizing how intense a movie is, you know that this is something that you can't, you can't recapture. No. It's just, it's really good. It's It's got a lot of fun moments, and it's funny, and even... Uh, I forget the actor's name who runs the detention, but he appeared in Die Hard uh, and other films. And, you know, just... Got you for two months. Yeah, he gets the horns up. <laughs> so, it, you know, it, it's got just a lot of great, you know, uh, back and forth with the characters and music, score and whatnot. Still, don't you forget about me, still a big hit this, to this day uh, for me, but... Um, Definitely a film that just cannot be replicated. I and agree. So, what's on your fourth? Fifth. Or is it your fifth now? Um, yeah, I started. The Silence of the Lambs. Ironically, that's on this list that oh, I was talking really? about. Yeah. So, with me, 
it's no secret that's one of my most favorite movies, and everybody thinks I'm like a fucking psycho because I love it so much, but I really do, and I am okay with all these sequels and, and TV shows and stuff, but, you know, they redid Red Dragon as Red Dragon with, um... Because it was Manhunter in 1980, mm-hmm. which was good. Well, I don't know, 80, but it's in the 80s. Yeah, so it was good, but they remade Red Dragon, and I'm like Anthony Hopkins, you know, like it, it always to me like Anthony Hopkins is Hannibal Lecter, and Red Dragon I thought was way better than Manhunter, just because of Anthony Hopkins, you know, like. Because they change around, you know, the there's been different Clarices and there's been different... Um, well, Manhunter's on Shutter now, so we'll probably revisit that because I really like that version. Because um, it's What's-His-Face from CI... CSI. CSI, yeah. Yeah. But for me, I appreciate you could remake probably any other except for Silence of the Lambs. Hmm. It's... It's like I, just everything about well, I, it. But I was going back to the, the iconic character that you talked about, what you talked about with Spy Game with Redford. Like, Hopkins is just so brilliant as Hannibal Lecter that, like, you, again, you just can't see anybody else. Granted, Mads Mikkelsen, who did it for the TV show, was very good. I really enjoyed that series a lot. Um, but that could be a lot to do with the story writing. But I don't know if we took Mads and actually we put him in place for a remake for Silence that it would actually work the same, I doubtful. Uh, they both handle the characters a little bit differently. Well, I think in the series it was pre-prison. Right, it was. And so... It was, yeah, it was way pre-prison. Cause... So in the movie, you've got... Because he was this intellectual. Mm-hmm. And he was this refined man. And you kind of see that a little bit in Red Dragon too, where pre-prison... But now he's in prison, and they know he's a monster. So he keeps up the the facade of I'm a refined man, and then I'm just gonna cut some dude's face off and put it on mine. And yeah, like that—that's what I mean. Like it's so phenomenal. Like I I can't I can't ever think of replacing Anthony Hopkins. I can't think of redoing Silence of the Lambs. And you have to also think too. I always throw technology into things because it does play a factor. Like nowadays, just like we were watching um, that documentary on the Golden State Killer and Michelle uh, McNamara writing that book. And um, so this is before there was a lot of technology available for us. Our cat is hacking up a hairball right now. Something. So it, there, this is before there was a lot of technology available. There was a lot. There wasn't a lot of. Um, oh, she's fine. There, there wasn't a lot of like. Oh, I can't. I you can't like just go on the internet and start googling things. They had to start using their minds a little bit and figure out these clues that Hannibal Lecter was feeding them without. You, so that that's that was just why. I think if you tried to remake it, it would just be like, oh, I'm just going to go Google such and such storage facility, and you'd figure it out. Like, it, it it makes you think. That's 
Yeah, my uh, my fifth one. Uh, really, no iconic characters to really worry about with this film, but because it is an iconic special effects movie uh, in terms of how it was made, and we talked about it when we talked about our favorite horrors with Edgar Allan Poe and all that. Uh, the Howling is still a film that I feel that because of the way things go now, and I know they've kind of dabbled with the idea of maybe doing a remake of the movie or a series or something. Uh, I'd be interested in a series. I just don't, I don't have, again, it's a lack of faith in it. Uh, whether or not they can pull it off the same way, the same vibe, atmosphere that the Howling created. So, for me, that's the one fifth film on my list that I just think that ultimately you're not going to be able to get away with doing a remake of uh, very successfully. I agree because remember we were talking about the change. Yeah. The, the transformation scene and how iconic it was and how different it was and how every time like you try you look at different transformation scenes you're just like <laughs> eh. You know or it's like overly CGI or it's overly like Right, like, you, you know, this this looks like... The change that they do in, like, the Underworld series is fine for each CGI, but, again, it, it really lacks in comparison to the Howling or American Wolf in London, and it's like... And what they had to do to make it happen. Right, so it's just, you know, it's very hard for me to look and see how they can even replicate that right now with that, so... Sometimes practical effects are better than special effects. I mean, we've seen it. Even when you're talking about Jaws... It was a practical effect, and a practical effect that didn't work all the time, which made the movie that much more suspenseful. Right. So, on my article here from scoopwoop.com, Scoop, they whoop, have whoop. 25 films that are so perfect they should never ever be remade. Are you listening, Hollywood? All right. Number one. Number one is The Breakfast Club. We just talked about that. Yep. Two is Goodfellas. <gasps> I didn't even think about Goodfellas. Uh, yeah, that's a great film. Uh, three is The Shawshank Redemption. I've never seen that. People oh, say it's great. It's okay. <laughs> it's good. It is good. It's it's something you watch once. It's... I, I will say that the list, when I looked over it quickly, there's some films in there that I've seen that I'm like, if they made, if they remade them, I wouldn't really care. Some of the other ones are different. The thing, the reason why they say, you, like, the Shawshank Redemption is long, and it's a slow burn type movie, and it's like, eh, I, I understand why you wouldn't want to remake it, because it was good, but it's not something that, like you said, would hurt my feelings if they tried again. Number four, The Matrix. Now, even though they're making The Matrix 4, a uh, remake would be what? I don't know, I don't think I'd be really turned off if they remade The Matrix. Uh, not that any of the characters were bad from the first one or anything, but... I think I agree with this, though, because I remember um, when The Matrix came out and how it was just like a mindfuck to everybody. To take the blue pill, to take the red pill. So I agree, and, and if you remade it, it wouldn't have that same effect because you can't get that same grip on the audience because it's already out there. Right. You know, you can't, like, just... You can't build that up again. Number five, Dead Poets Society. I've never seen it, so I can't really speak on that. You haven't seen Captain, My Captain? Nope. Number six, Life is Beautiful. Another one I've never seen. I've never seen this one either. 
Apparently, it's a 1997 film about the Holocaust is an ocean of emotions. So, it's definitely dealing with all the Nazis and Hitler and stuff. So, I have no idea. Number seven, Silence of the Lambs. We talked about that. Mm -hmm, and I agree. Eight, Moonlight. Never saw it. I haven't either. Uh, number nine, I agree with this. Pulp Fiction, you can't touch it. I, you know, I didn't even think about Pulp Fiction. I wouldn't even think of somebody trying to, to do, that, yeah. do Pulp Fiction because it's like... It was so different at the time. Like, I don't know how many times I watched it when it every, came out. Yeah, I went to the theater like two or three times to see it. Like the, and everyone I knew raved about it. Like it just was, it was the hit, hottest film during that year. Uh... Ten, Scarface. Yes! Oh, fuck, I forgot about Scarface! How did I forget about Scarface? How do you forget about Tony? You, he had never seen Scarface, and I made him watch it, and he was, like, not as impressed with it as I thought he would be, because it has a really young, hot Michelle Pfeiffer. I like the film. Um, I don't know if it stands out amongst a lot of Pacino's work, but, it, you know, I mean, I know it's a classic with a lot of people, so... Uh, I don't have any problems with it. I just, you know, I can't even say that I think it should be remade. I don't think it should be. No, it shouldn't! Uh, Eleven, this one I disagree with, just because I, I, I don't think it's quite as iconic as they want to make it be. It's Pretty Woman, with uh, Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. Great movie, uh, but I don't think it's something that can't be touched with a remake. But you know what, though? This is all already kind of a remake, and they're they're kind of, like, bullshitting themselves backward. It's a Cinderella story. Right. So, you can remake. How many Cinderella stories have we watched from different perspectives? Yes, she's a sex worker. Right. Yes, he's a millionaire. It's fucking Cinderella. Twelve. I can care less that they remake this. I never liked the original anyway. Citizen Kane. It's probably one of the most boring movies I've ever seen in my life. So, uh, yeah, they can remake it all they want. I don't give a shit. Uh, this has no reason to be remade. Empire Strikes Back. Don't know why. No. Why would they? I mean, like... It's pointless. Like, they can't even get the new ones right. Why would they want to go back Why would you want to fuck with the good ones? <laughs> right. 14. Missy would love this. Dazed and Confused. All right, all right, all right. right. I, I watched this so many times, and then I love it. It's like, we're going to have a party down at the moonlight. <laughs> what was that? Were they moon towers? The moon towers. Number 15. We did see this. I just don't remember much about it. Jojo Rabbit. Uh, it was an okay movie. I don't know why it would make this list. Maybe people would give more credit than it needs. I don't know. Uh, 16, definitely don't touch this. The Dark Knight, can't do it. Sorry, Heath Ledger was brilliant in this. Just can't do it. Mm -hmm. 17, everyone talked about this film. I never saw it. Parasite. Um, it, you know, it, it won awesome Oscars, I think, or awards anyway. And uh, 18, Arrival. I didn't like the movie, so they can remake it if they want. <laughs> Careful. You're so funny. 19, Lion, never saw it. Nicole Kidman and uh, Dave Patel, so I, I don't know anything about it. But it made the list. 20, oh. Hunt for the Wild Wilder People, never saw that one either. There's quite a few in here I haven't seen, so I can't really say one way or the other. 21, Fences, with Denzel Washington, you ever see that? Mm -mm. Number 22, The Big Lebowski. 
Yeah, don't don't redo the big Lebowski. That's a pretty big cult classic. Not just being a cult classic, it's so weird and funny weird at the same time. If you tried to re like, if you did this is the big Lebowski remade, you wouldn't. It would be more like a slapstick comedy where like in here the humor wouldn't really hit people. Yeah, this is like a very like sarcastic and subtle, dry. I can feel if they remade it and they picked someone like more modern to play these characters, you'd just be like, it's yeah. not. Because the one guy that John Goodman plays, um, he married a Jewish woman, but then they divorced, but then he still um, sits Shaba. And, and he's he's like, you don't roll on Shaba like, for bowling. like, And he, it just. I feel like you take these little tiny, like that little line, and you try to redo it, it's just not the same. 23, The Green Book. Never heard of it, never saw it. 24, Hackshaw Ridge. I remember there was a talk about it because of the supposed medic who wouldn't use a gun to save people. And I've never saw the war movie, though. And at 25, probably would agree with this, Taxi Driver, Robert De Niro, you can't really touch it. Uh, it's definitely a classic for the times, 1976 film. You know what else I would add to this too? Falling Down. Oh yeah, Michael Douglas. Mm-hmm. It's it's on the same vein as Taxi Driver. Oh, like, that, and also there's a movie he did called The Game that was brilliant, brilliant movie. I just feel like, like Taxi Driver. Now with the rise of like ride sharing and Uber, you don't really have that connection to the way taxis used to work and how i mean i'm sure that uber drivers get an earful too but in new york city in the 70s when new york was really a shithole especially like almost all over and you have this guy dealing with it's almost like he's in his own war excuse me every day and you see that kind of like towards the end when he shaves his head and and like starts going fucking crazy which is kind of like michael douglas and falling down i mean maybe they have like a little bit of a connection maybe there's a little bit of inspiration taken from the movies they are like 20 years apart but you you can't like the times in the 70s like versus new york now is very different like New York is way different than it was back then and you can't really just change that because if you had a taxi driver in New York number one they don't even give out medallions like they used to buying a taxi driver medallion was like a big deal and people would save their entire lives for it and then it would be like gold when you get your medallion it's gold you're in um it's all been kind of eaten up by the ride-sharing platforms, Uber, Lyft, etc. And it doesn't really mean anything anymore. And, and maybe they could maybe they could take a stab at it where it's a taxi driver going crazy because he's losing all of his fares to Uber people. And then he shaves his head and goes crazy. And every time he sees an Uber light up in somebody's front window, he shoots the fuck out of them. I mean, you could go, but it's never going to be the same thing because you just had people... Vietnam was ending... It's the 70s. It's gritty. I mean, he had PTSD. Like, that's what you have to really, like, you talking to me? Are you talking to me? (laughs) 
So, I, I feel for a lot of those movies on the list, and I think that that author was really trying to get a nice broad, you know, like, horizon. There's some movies, like, I would have put on, on my list, too, like, Steel Magnolias, but it was remade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Steel Magnolias was written about, it's kind of a true story, uh, her her brother, Shelby's brother, wrote it as a, as a play, and then it was such a successful play that they turned it into a movie. So, same vein with my, one of my favorite movies, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, everybody, like, I could never see anybody else but Tim Curry be Dr. Frankenfurter. However, with the success of its cult status... They turned it into a musical, and now there's lots of Dr. Frankenfurters right. out there. However, I would never want them to turn it into a musical again and and refilm it with somebody else to have it on film forever. Yep, just one of those things. All right, well, let's get back to some music. Got some stuff from Immortal Sin in here, Timmy Tolkien's Avalon, and then we're going to kick it off some more brand new stuff from Halloween, Fear of the Fallen, and we'll be back. Cat be calling for food. ground my friend refuse and your fall goes hand in hand decide decide
everybody, this is Mr. Joshua Gray, your live gameplay DJ, live weekday mornings, every day, but hump day, playing Mortal Kombat or other games occasionally and featuring a number of different artists. So come on by, grab your breakfast, and enjoy some fatalities. Mr. Joshua Gray on YouTube, Monday, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, 8 noon to the moon. And you're listening to DJ Anubis and DJ Neko on Metal Tavern Radio. Getting ready to jump into our rock block. That's right. Got some stuff by Lost Division, Jamart, The Firebirds, The Boxager, and of course Neko's Pick of the Week. Mm-hmm. We'll kick it all off with the rumors. Want ya.
Looking for a place to take care of all your automotive needs? Then get in touch with Stauffer's Auto Service in Millersville, Maryland. Stauffer's takes care of all auto repairs, auto service, and great quality parts as well. Stauffer's is located at A328 Veterans Highway, Suite E in Millersville. Be sure to call and check out all their service specials related to your automotive needs. Stauffer's is professional, friendly, and has highly qualified mechanics who do excellent work with prices that are fair and much better than what you will find at other automotive places. So call 410-729-0121. That's 410-729-0121. And tell them the newsman and his trusty sidekick, Neko, sent you
Echo's pick of the week. So, DJ Anubis has been chastising me because I keep picking too many 90s and 70s songs. And yes, this is another 90s song that takes surprise, me surprise. Takes me back to my HF Festival days. They play the HF Festival and um I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just because I'm old and getting older. And you know, I'm trying to reminisce about my past maybe or maybe it's just because you know those were some of my earliest memories of going to, to concerts and stuff that it's just like you know embedded in my memory and we literally have not gone to see live music in how long now like a year and a half so every, I feel like every time since I've been home and I'm not traveling anymore it's like all I'm doing is uh what's the word um just reflecting I guess on you know my my late teens early 20s it's not like I have all this time on my hands it's just like what kind of happens I just yeah I mean, sit and start daydreaming and I'm like I remember I remember that and then the funny thing is is like sometimes you know when we went to dinner last night I, I wonder how I, like, didn't die. <laughs> I told a story. Uh, my girlfriend and I, we've been friends since mm, the first grade. And her daughter is now 20. And mm, I had to take a sip. Her daughter's now 20, and I was telling her a story about her mother and I going to Outback Steakhouse and drinking every single specialty drink on the menu and then I proceeded to drive us home, you know, because it's a great choice when you're 21. <laughs> but she's like, oh, mom, I can't believe you did that. And my girlfriend's like, I wasn't driving. She's like, but you made the choice to get in the vehicle. Yeah, that was probably, you know, poor decision making, but we didn't die. So... And I think that's just kind of like what's been coming up with me lately. I just keep thinking about, and that's why it's been a lot of 90s and 70s, because I'm thinking about my childhood and like my mom's childhood too. So this song honestly just got played a lot, and it reminds me of, I don't think it was my first HFS. Well, I think it was yeah, my, I think I'll go on record saying one. I never got into this band at all. But uh, yeah. They were popular around that time. And I just really, uh, I don't know. I like cocaine. So here's, uh... <laughs> hey, Dr. Oxa. I do cocaine. <laughs> so here's Buck Cherry with Lit Up. Attention, please. Be prepared for a musical transformation that you've never felt before. In a moment, we will bring you on a journey like there's no tomorrow. And we will break new ground. Hailing from the land below the wind. 
DJ Neko's pick of the week.
listening to Metal Tavern Radio. Come get it. Get lit. Yeah, and John too. <laughs> Alright, DJ Nibis. And DJ Deco. Back with you here, closing out the rock block. So what did you think about that rock block? I love the rock block. It's always good. A lot of different shit in there. So, next week, I promise, on the rock block, there will be something from the 80s. DJ Nibis has three songs in the list that are 80s approved. Yep. Yep. Yep, yep. So, uh, Canadian death metal band Overt had a unique performance in their home city of Quebec. The trio performed one of their first shows since the pandemic to a very unique audience, elementary school kids. So how did they like that? So, it all came about because guitarist Felipe Druin is also a music teacher at the school, and the faculty suggested setting it up. Oh, that's so awesome! Yeah, that's a really cool thing about it. He's teaching there, and the faculty say, hey, we know you're in this band. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. And really, obviously, the band didn't know what to think of it all. And I'm going to show you the video later when we're off air because you didn't have a chance to see it. I kind of just found the article at the last minute. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, but the kids, when the band is playing, they're actually dancing around. Like they, they really have no clue what they're saying or what it's even about, but... You can see them all kind of jumping around and having a good time with it. I love that. And, of course, they know him. They know that it's like Mr. So-and-so for from music class. Well, yeah, they, they, they recognize the band logo. They knew that he teaches the class. Mm-hmm. So they're like, they're having a good time with it. They don't give a shit what it is, you know. Uh, but apparently the physical education teacher and school principal introduced me to this idea. Uh, he was thinking about a party to celebrate the end of the school year by doing a show in a school backyard where... He teaches music, so he knew about the release of their album, which I have not heard yet, so the, I'll have to check the band out for a very cool idea. Uh, and so they did this, and uh, but on the other serious note, Druin had suffered a serious car accident in 2016, leaving him unable to play with his right arm. Oh, no. He was since able to relearn how to play playing left-handed, so the kids were excited. Holy shit! Yeah. That's amazing. That's not easy to do. No, not at all. Especially, I mean, it's five years later really so basically that's pretty damn good to turn around i can't even like i don't know dial a phone with my left hand (laughs) right uh i wasn't sure at first it was strange to me drew instead of the schoolyard show but all the kids knew about the fact that i switched to left-handed and released something before the pandemic started uh that show became a big surprise when the kids recognized the musicians and the overt logo on the amp the kids really enjoyed the performance, which was inspiring to us when we were pleased to release this unique performance video. So I do apologize for you that don't know this yet, but you can find us on MetalInjection.net. Uh, the band is called Overt, O-B-V-U-R-T, and uh, it's a really cool video. Like it's, you know, it's weird because you got these little kids there, but uh, it's really fun when you see them actually respond and they're just having a good time with it. Like they don't even care. So, uh, and of course you got this band doing death metal growls and shit, so, uh, they sound like a really cool band, I have to definitely check them out, uh, looks like a lot of fun, so. Alright, uh, now also. Now also what? Speaking of death. Uh Uh-oh. Nolan Void. Oh, he's our buddy. Yeah, he released, uh, his debut record, Screaming Into the Void, and uh, we played some tracks from his in the past when he was still putting this shit together and whatnot. 
Uh, but now it's all full length. It's out there on Bandcamp. Uh, one of the tracks that I found from the record is a very strong record. I really, in fact, actually, even the songs that we played before are a lot cleaner. So the production that they worked on uh, since then, because it's been about a year or so, you know, that we've been, you know, friends with Nolan and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So uh, the work that he did on the record has come out really nice and very strong. So this is probably my favorite track from the record. It's called Triumph Through Adversity. I also got some brand new stuff from Nasty Surgeons in here and Ossuary. So. And, you know, I found out that you were friends with Ossuary on Facebook before I was. How the fuck did that happen? Um, I just start, like, friending people. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of times, I I am not really good with social media. And we've discussed this. I was better before, but I was more like an annoying kid on social media. But I, you know, my social media use is, like, if I'm just sitting, I'll, like, flip through some stuff every now and then. I'm not... You are a big hit on Instagram, though, for some reason. Like, when even when it comes to music, like, they just follow and you. And I think that might have been what happened. I, um, I gotta get better to posting our shows on Instagram, because... She says this all the time. I know. I promise. I will. I'll, I'll, I'll do it for this past week's show <laughs> Do it tonight. for the Gipper. I will. I'll do it for the Gipper. But, <laughs> like, I find that, um, what, I, I don't know how, there's nothing special about my instagram but when i post things about our show a lot of bands will like just say hey thanks for following or oh god i love that or thanks for playing my song and i'm like i didn't even know you were following my instagram or i don't know how you found it or whatever yep that's her and nip it in the bud nip it in the bud all right well here's triumph through adversity screaming into the void nolan well done my friend
everyone, this is Blake from Pig Destroyer, Hate Beak, and Zealot R.I.P. And you are listening to DJ Anubis and DJ Neko at Metal Tavern Radio. Get into it now. This is the Retro Movie Vault with your hosts DJ Anubis and DJ Neko only on Metal Tavern Radio. You haven't heard anybody say anything about either one of these. Well, what about these two? Well, they suck. These are the same two movies? You weren't paying any attention. No, I wasn't. I don't think your manager would appreciate it. I appreciate your ruse, ma'am. I beg your pardon? Your ruse, your cunning attempt to trick me. Alright, DJ Nubis. And DJ Neko. Back with you on the Time Radio Podcast. Gonna talk a little about Neko's Pick of the Week. So, it always starts like this. I open up the retro DVD video vault and I'm like how about this and he says no how about this <laughs> and he says no how about this no yeah so I pulled out the ring and I said how about this and he's like are you sure <laughs> I tried to watch it the other day and I had to turn it off I don't know what it is about this movie I've only watched it one other time and that is not exactly exaggeration it is not a lie i watched it once when he and i first watched it together when we first met and then i watched it the other night with him and it scared me that much and i said you know what maybe i should give it a go because it's been what you know 18 years since i've seen this movie maybe maybe we should uh take a look at it so all right turn on the ring and it's sad because i remembered everything <laughs> i was like i remember this part i remember this part and I, I this is not me like with gilmore girls and i watch it over and over and over again this is i watched it one time just one time just one time yep 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 so it was still scary it still freaked me the fuck out I did forget about one thing when that horse jumped off the boat. I was like, oh, fuck, I forgot about that, but I probably blacked it out because I was sad. Right. So, yeah, you know, Neck and I, we watched this early on when we were dating, and I think it was like 2003 or something like that. And uh, we told you a story about how we were in a basement, freaking out, had to go upstairs, and, like, you know... It's funny because we turned the TV on, but like 
that's kind of like the whole basis of the the movie itself is the TV plays a part in it with the v, v, uh, VHS tape and whatnot and so that doesn't really solve the problem really when you're thinking about no the it doesn't <laughs> uh, but that you know that's sort of a sign of a good movie I mean I know people are pretty torn on this versus the original but and I like both the original and the remake of this. Um, I didn't realize that the original was like 50% different than the remake, so I might have to go back and revisit the original. But, uh... It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier, borrowing similar themes and taking it into its own. Right. But, uh, yeah, the movie is really good. Really, you know, it's one of the earlier roles by Naomi Watts, and, uh, she did a really good job in it. And I was, you know, side note, equally impressed with the remake for The Grudge as well. So, at the time, they were doing a pretty good job when they were remaking some of these films, or at least rebooting them at American version. Uh, but this film, we went back and visited. Now, this time around, you know, we, we know what the game is. We know what to expect. We're not as, like, terrified by it as we were. Uh, but the movie is still still has a sense of creepiness about it because Samara, the actress we talked about at the time, uh, the young actress who was portraying the character, did it like incredibly great job of conveying how creepy she was. But I do, and I'm sorry. Like just the way she said that in the video, I was like, "Fuck, little bitch." Mm. So, as you were saying. We both had to take a sip. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, she was able to convey the character very well. And uh, I didn't get the chance for the, the piece of uh, scene that I wanted to put before we spoke because it didn't do all the way that it should. But it was a scene from where initially Naomi Watts' character thinks that she is finally put Samara at rest. They found her body and, you know, they were going to bury her and all this, and then she's there with her young son, who has also watched the uh, VHS. I mean, if you haven't seen it, the basic premise is that if you watch this VHS tape of these images and whatnot uh, with the dark ring and, you know, vivid, uh, images of horses and, and flies and stuff like that, and you soon afterwards, you get like a call that tells you you have seven days to live. They just say seven days, right? And hang up. Uh, so the son inadvertently watches it one night when his mom's sleeping, not realizing what it is. So he's now caught up in all this shit as well. He's like, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. So anyway, towards the end of the film, uh, Naomi Watts' character, she through a lot of research because that's what she does she figures she's out. an investigative reporter right so she discovers where the body is what happened and you know figures she's putting Samara to rest well the scene that I was going to use to open this up with she's back at home with her son in bed laying there and they wake up the next morning and she's telling them that yeah you know we put her we set her free and so the kid looks yeah we buried her everything's fine we found her the blah, kid blah, jumps blah. I was like why'd you do that you're not supposed to do that you're not supposed to help her she never sleeps yeah so uh, the idea is that Samara just isn't a very good person like even though she's a child she's just vengeful kid like you know and somehow 
even when she was alive, she was able to bring about this curse or whatever it is because her mother and father were horse breeders. So one of the things that happened was the horses were dying. And, you know, obviously it could have been anything, but the father believed it to be Samara's issue. And so... And the mother was complaining that ever since she adopted her, it was like she, uh, she had these like horrible thoughts in her head and she couldn't get rid of them. And, and the funny thing is the mother was kind of like uh, psychotic anyway because she ended up in a institution and it, it was just a it's a really crazy story uh, but it's really well played especially the opening scene with the two girls and how they're talking it's almost like the urban legend shit that we were talking about and that but see that's how um naomi watts got involved is it, the what her niece was the victim right but um as we you know after we watched the film again neko had found this article on uh, mentalfloss.com with the 15 must watch facts about the ring and what i didn't even know was the original movie ringu actually was on VHS tape. It was actually a VHS tape and very hard to find. And so there was actually within uh, Hollywood circles or whatever, this tape that's running around that, you know, people might have been looking to have put into DVD format or whatever, but it's very poor quality. So Gore Verbinski, who directed this, originally saw this film on the VHS. And so he said that added to the whole creepiness of the movie itself. So, not even going by what he made, just by the original Ringu, which again is a very, very good original movie. Yeah, it, it adds to the whole stereotype and myth. And being it on a VHS right. and having a, a creepy quality. Because that's basically what this is, is that Watts is discovering that this tape out there, that if you watch it, that's what you know you have seven days before you can you die and she started taking the tape and like dissecting it like looking for clues oh and yeah stuff. they were doing you know tracking and adjusting it and stopping it like it's really weird because she discovered at one point there's this fly on the screen that appears when you watch it but then at one point when she stopped it she was able to pull the fly off of the screen like live like and of course one of the more traumatic scenes is her ex-husband, or not even a husband, but the guy that is the father of the kid who she's no longer with, but they're working together. Uh, he's already watched the film, and so he's just there by himself after they thought that they had put her to rest. And This that, is like the culmination. This right. is like what got us. The TV comes on, mm -hmm. which is normal for what happens. And, you know, you see the film and like there's just bits and pieces but when it comes back on uh there's this like very slow i guess it's sort of done in reverse i think i think that's how they shot it so basically it's samara coming up out of this well and the black hair starts first and then her hands and then it's just very creepy then she managed to come like crawl out of the tv and so she's kind of like this static animation sort of uh where ghostly figure and like he's freaking the fuck out and of course you know he doesn't end well for him but, mm -hmm. uh but that's how she does things it's it's like you can unplug the tv you can do this and that but the tv will still become a factor 
because uh, that's how she gets to because it's haunted right so but i did find it very interesting that the original movie was a vhs copy <laughs> uh which is kind of cool uh there's just other things in the article about like the state of the, the film when they were shooting like it was very rainy in washington state when they were shooting so it kind of added to the dreariness mm -hmm. of everything um in some ways, I guess Nika would agree, when you're watching a film, there are things that are kind of like, it's almost like signs. Uh, there's a lot of images about trees and, mm -hmm. you know, wells. And, like, the original ring that you see on the cover and what the movie's about, uh, you don't really discover what that is until about towards the end. Like, you finally realize, oh, shit, this is what it is. Um is basically was Samara looking up through the well when she got thrown down. Yeah, there. like when they pushed the cover over top of it. Right. So uh, it's just a lot of interesting things like that that play a part of this. They used the ring symbolism now, and they someday, purposely did that. Now someday Neko and I will have to probably rewatch it again because apparently carpeting and wallpaper patterns and circular kitchen knobs are all designed in a ring pattern which i didn't notice at all after watching it a couple times so uh that kind of reminds me a little bit of uh kubrick's uh the shining mm -hmm. like there's certain symbolism there with that so that's something we have to kind of check out next time we watch it uh at some point apparently the actors thought that while shooting the movie wasn't going to be scary enough <laughs> but we talked about this at the time that when actors are shooting movies, it doesn't matter what it is. It's generally out of order. So, you, you know, you would think in your head, you're like, okay, well, we're going to do this scene and then do the next one for the movie and the movie. But sometimes, depending on what they have, weather-wise or scene-wise, they do it out of order. So actors really have no idea how it's going to play out on the screen until it happens. And so at this point, the CGI hadn't even been added in. So they're just kind of going off of what they're doing in the script. And that happens a lot because they had to try to envision what's happening. So they think that everything sounds kind of corny and funny. But by the time you add in all the other bullshit, like the, the sound score and the, the effects and all that, it's like, oh, shit, that's creepy as hell. Yeah, I mean, if you if you think about how basic and, you know, again, this is this has it's just a nice simplistic. They're not going crazy with the CGI. They're just adding a little bit of uh a little bit of an element to it they're probably just sitting talking to each other either they've got lights and cameras and stuff all around them so they're probably like what is this but then when you start adding in filters and you start throwing in the cgi and then you add the sound score like you were saying it really does kind of add to the atmosphere yeah and then one of the other things uh apparently there's an actor named chris cooper who was cut from the movie he was gonna play an initial pivotal part where he was gonna play a child murderer and they were kind of booking his scenes to make it all complete but eventually it, it didn't really pass with the like test screen so they ended up cutting his whole part of it out of it which it, without seeing i can't say if it's bad or good but the movie itself played out just fine uh so i think that actually it's kind of better that there wasn't a child murderer um i thought the whole allure about the mother actually committing the crime was a big shock and deal about it because mm -hmm. of how much she wanted a kid 
Uh, so that really played a big part of it. Um, there actually is a place, uh, the place that the kid Samara lived and the parents was a place called Moseko Island. It's actually the Yakina Head Lighthouse. Yep, and that actually exists. <laughs> so, um, yeah, outside of the, the article has a lot of different stuff in it. Some of it I don't really care about too much. Uh, just opinions by uh, Gorbinski and all that. But uh, Neko did point out before we watched it that Dave uh, Chase, who plays Samara in the film, actually scared herself after watching it for the first time when it was done. Like, you know, they're, again, they're doing it as an actress. She's probably not seeing where all the fear is, but when she finally sees it on film and how it's put together, that, you know, it can be quite jarring. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so, because she was young, you know, she wasn't that old at the time, so. She's like, I'm just crawling around right now, and then, then when she sees what's happening, or if she's like, She's, like, just sitting with her long hair and talking, and then when you, like, take it and make it make it look like archival footage and make it grainy, it just That's adds the, thing. Adds the like, intensity. When you find that the editing and everything else plays a factor, it's like, wow. You know, that's pretty amazing what they did. Like, and you hear it a lot of times. Like, I remember reading the first time the Harry Potter, Potter actors watched their first film. Like, they... Yeah, I mean, they were kids, but they didn't realize, like, after they watched it, like, wow, they really put something together great here. Like, yeah, they, they really, like, you know, I can imagine with Harry Potter, because there are, even though it's it's added and it's CGI and it's, you know, animated parts, like, thinking about the pictures and the mm -hmm. staircases moving, you don't see that until, you know, post-production, and they're like, wow, this really does look like a magical castle kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the, them on broomsticks, and, mm -hmm. like, they're just on, like, these little ride things that they're doing, and it's like a green screen, so, like, they don't see what we end up seeing in the final cut, so, same thing here with the ring, it's like, they're acting, they're in their little studio, which... You know, this picture I'm looking at with Samara in the institution, like, it's probably just a room surrounded by, like, a warehouse. Like, it, she knows as an actress that there's nothing else there except for that little room she's in. So, but she's acting, but then by the time you do the movie, you're like, wow, they really made it look they like... They really made me look like I was in a mental institution. <laughs> right. So, that, that's kind of the cool thing about it. But uh, the movie itself, I know, it, again, it, people are kind of off and on about how good they like it or dislike it but it's certainly uh if I, I don't think we even talked about it but it's probably one of the better remakes out there as far as horror films are mm -hmm. concerned uh so i enjoyed it a lot it was a good pick all right well we're going to get back into the music the music we just talked about nolan and his screaming to avoid project and uh the drummer Colby Rogers, who appears on his Persecution Complex band that uh, Nolan plays with, uh, is in a band called Est, Est Yannix. I, believe. I don't know if that's pronounced per correctly or not, but they just released a new record, Extreme Anti-Natalist Design, and it's one of my favorites of the year. It's so brutalizing, devastating, and fantastic up from start to finish. It's just incredible. Uh, great band uh, out of Texas. And uh, we're going to get a taste of that now with also some brand new stuff from Witch, Mo uh, Witch Vomit 
and uh, some classic stuff from Derisonation. So here it is, Ashton X Autoerotic Insinuation.
Patrick from the Canadian Fresh Metal Band Reanimator, and you're listening to Middle Tavern Radio.
Accidente, losers. Good classic metal there. DJ Nibis. And DJ Neko. Here with you, getting ready to close out this edition of the Hordes of Chaos. Appreciate all that tune in and check it out. Hope you all enjoy it. Thanks to our labels and promotional sites for the music provided. And uh, any final words? Um, no. <laughs> I'll have to see what uh, movie I have in store for us next time. <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm going to pick yet, so we'll figure You don't know what you're going to pick yet? Nope. And I had gone into this, the last one I did, with a different thing in mind, but you know, more something else entirely, so it always happens. Well, you all know, right. it's what you're in the mood for, right? Exactly. All right, well, we'll see you all next time. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.